0: Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu.
1: And thanks very much for joining us this week. Over these past many months, we've certainly heard a lot of talk from senior officials in DOD and across the government about how much we've learned from the workforce having been forced to work remotely during the pandemic, along with some kind of vague observations about how at least some of that telework posture is going to be enduring and that we're never going to go fully back to the pre-pandemic status quo. But there's a big difference between talking about it and actually planning for it. And today we're going to talk to one of the few organizations that's actually put some thoughts about long-term workplace flexibilities down on paper. The Army's Combat Capabilities Development Command, or DEVCOM, has just published a Future of Work concept paper that tries to start asking and answering some of the questions about what work looks like once the pandemic is over. Our guest for the full show this week is Mr. John Willison. He is the top civilian official at DEVCOM. His official title is Deputy to the Commanding General. And Mr. Willison, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I want to start with some of the future of work concepts that-, that you laid out in this recent white paper. I- you know, I- I've heard a lot of senior defense officials talk over the past year about how we're, we're not going back to the way things were pre COVID, but DevCom, I think is the first organization I'm aware of anyway that's actually proved we mean it by writing it down on paper and showing it to the workforce. So, so maybe start us off by talking a little bit about why you felt it was important to write this out in a concept document and what you're trying to get after here.
2: Great, and great question. First of all, let me say up front, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this topic that's really important to us and we're excited about. So we're an organization, Army organization, who's got the mission of, of doing research, development, and engineering. You know, and so we've got 15,000 government people, you know, only 162 of them are military. So so we do it with a large civilian and a large scientific STEM workforce, pretty much doing, like I said, research, development and engineering innovation for the Army. You know, and so for over three years now, we've had our eye on talent management and have been paying attention to talent management, um, operationalizing enterprise talent management, and so we had this foundation talent management, this focused talent management, and then, as you know, a year ago, um, with the COVID pandemic, you know, usually we're doing lab experiments on on interesting Army technology. Basically, we, we realized partway through the COVID pandemic that you know, we were doing an experiment on ourselves, pretty much, you know. And and so it was an opportunity, a forced experiment, which is how we'd want to set things up to, to to try something different for a year. Um, and so we had to manage between these two tensions of still delivering on our mission, while also taking care of our workforce. And so those are the tensions that we managed for a year. No one really could have foreseen how effective we would be able to operate over the course of a year. I mean, there was some impact to mission, but we were able to provide a lot of flexibility to our workforce as well. So really what happened is we got into the summer time frame and we realized there was a lot of angst in our workforce about the upcoming school year, the upcoming fall just the fall in general. And so in August we told our 25,000 plus total workforce to continue working remotely as much as possible through at least the end of December. What that then did was put us on a path to say, by the end of December, we have to have a more long-term answer. And so that was really the genesis of this future of work concept paper that we put out to say, okay, post-pandemic, what's enduring? How are we going to operate post-pandemic? And so that was the genesis. That's really where we started. And so we put that paper out, and it structures how we foresee operating for the future going forward, um, and and lays that out in certain terms.
1: Yeah. And before we get into that, the the specifics of that structure, I, I'd like to go back a little bit to a year or so ago when when everybody kind of first realized at once that we were going to have to do telework for a while. I, correct me if I if my presumptions here are wrong, but I'm imagining that was a that was a bigger lift for DEVCOM than maybe a lot of traditional organizations. I mean, I think of your folks of needing to be in a lab, needing to work on specialized equipment and supercomputers, and it's not so easy to just flip a switch and start doing some of that stuff remotely. How, how, how big a hump was that to get over initially? And what are some of the first things that you learned toward the beginning of all this?
2: Yeah, right. So great point. Right. So we've got engineers and scientists working on cyber energetics and warheads synthetic biology artificial intelligence ground vehicles and so yeah um there are some things that absolutely require access to army labs army infrastructure what this caused us to do was really default to where people were first working remotely and then only coming into our locations when they absolutely had to that's almost the flip of how we had operated which is default was you came to work right and you only left work when you had to. Um and, and so it really caused us to look at who really needed to come in for what and make it only those essential people coming in and making sure we're providing for a safe environment so that when people do have to come in it's safe they can get done what they needed to get done and then go back to working the default remotely. And, and as the year progressed, we got better and better at learning what could be done remotely and it turns out a significant portion of our work could be done remotely. When we pulled our workforce back in August, you know, 40% of our workforce believes they could work remotely 100% of the time. And then there's a gradient from there. There's some people that have to come in to get access to that, either secret networks to the Army labs, and and that'll continue to be true. And so it's not an either or. There's no binary choice here. Um, but, But we've managed pretty effectively throughout the year to get people in when they need to get to, to protect them but then to allow the people to work remotely as well. And how surprising
1: were those things to, to the command leadership, but both, you know, the ability of people to work remotely and the extent to which they wanted to.
2: Yeah. Great question. And I think anyone that told you they could have seen where we were going before this would be, would be lying to you. Um, We were very surprised at a couple of things. One, first of all, you know, so much thanks to our senior leaders from from you know my boss general, major general george up through general murray at futures command army senior leadership that that really embraced the necessity to do what was right you know rolling out collaboration tools like microsoft teams rolling out some things that enabled people to collaborate virtually um, and then also trusting people to work hard in this environment and so we saw on average over the past year that our employees worked 40 more hours over that year than they had the previous year, right? And and so that's pretty impressive when you think about people stepping up to this challenge, putting in that hard work to where we, of course, saw some mission impact, but we also saw people going to extraordinary measures to make sure they were getting done what they needed to get done.
1: So let's dig into some of the eaches of of this uh, future work concept as, as you say the the why and the what factors don't change your mission is is going to remain constant but the where the how the who the when those are all up for debate in in, in some sense um, and, and 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 at least in flux let's let's talk about the where first and you've touched on some of this do you have a good sense yet for what proportion of the workforce and how often is able to work in a non-traditional location.
2: Right. So the tagline for where that we go to is, is we want people to work where they are most productive. And as I mentioned, that will for some people mean working remotely 100% of the time. We've had portions of our workforce already that have embraced that and that have gone to that they've literally come in, packed up their offices and and they are 100% remote. A lot of that is in our business and enabling functions, our, our resource management, our human resource you know, our money, our people, our contracts, some of that business functions that absolutely can be done remotely. And so we're piloting that in some areas. When you get into the scientific space and we've got 10,000 engineers and scientists, right? We fully expect that it will be a blend that some people will need to come in more than others, depending on the space that they work in, right? And so we expect to see that range and that range will also vary over time, depending on where they are in projects, where there are in certain efforts. Right. So if they're if they're doing some analysis, if they're doing some modeling, if they're doing some thinking before they get to actually being in a lab to do something, a lot of that can be done remotely.
0: You know, and then and
2: then we fully expect people will need to come into an infrastructure to collaborate, come into our labs to do work. And so, you know, what we're seeing is, is typically about 20, 25 percent of our workforce over the, the entire command in at any one time. Right. So that gives you some sense of how often how much of the workforce would need to be in. And again, it's gonna, it's hard to give an answer, right? There's no number. Um, and, and this is where you know the trust of the workforce comes in. So if we say hey, work where you're most productive, that's gonna differ day to day, that's gonna differ space to space, that's gonna differ organization organization or project to project. And that's the kind of flexibility that we're gonna need to provide.
1: One thing that I've heard fairly consistently across government is that, you know, you can have a leadership team that's as supportive of telework as possible, but, but it may not be fully implemented or fully allowed to the extent it should, unless that culture really changes at sort of the middle management, frontline supervisor level. And, and I wonder, are you seeing that challenge at DEVCOM? And if so, what are you doing to kind of inculcate that culture down into the down into the ranks of, of supervisory roles who actually make the decisions about, I wanna see you here, or I don't know you're working versus it's okay to telework.
2: Ah, uh, great question. And so this is when I said, you know, we, we had the benefit of running a one-year experiment, right? And so, so no one can dispute, like I said, I can dispute anything, but it'd be hard to dispute what we've been able to accomplish for a year, right? So if someone now says, oh no, everyone's gotta be back in to get something done, We've got a year worth of experience to show pretty much universally, people have figured this out. Now, to your point, this will absolutely change some of the skills required of managers and leaders. We know it's gonna change, for example, what it means to have leadership presence. Right, doing that virtually, measuring people based not on the time they put in at one of our locations, but the output they've generated based on the work assigned it is a change. But again, we've seen positive, so much positive come out of the past year that that we are comfortable that working through and providing people the tools to operate this way, we'll continue to see that kind of productivity.
1: John Willison is the Deputy to the Commanding General at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. We'll come back and talk more about the future of work in the Army and across DOD after a quick break here. This is On DOD. On Federal News Network, I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking this week with John Willison. He is the Deputy to the Commanding General at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. DEVCOM has just published a new white paper describing what the future of work might actually look like once we are through the pandemic. What does this mean for the sorts of infrastructure that you're going to need going forward? And and I don't I don't just mean physical buildings. I mean i.t infrastructure or anything else that's going to be impacted by people working in different places and in different ways and at different times
2: right so we fully expect to to need to um, invest further in that i would say the i.t infrastructure our our automation our ability to connect people virtually um you know the the dod and the army moved quickly to embrace microsoft teams as as the solution for for this period And so we've been able to connect people. We've been able to make sure that people have those collaboration tools and and the Army and the DoD have full intent to to continue to expand on that. For us from a technical workforce, we've launched a a study group looking specifically at this area. What what additional infrastructure are we going to need from a network perspective, from a tools, from a collaboration? Are we going to need to be able to operate the way we want to operate going forward? And we know that's going to be combined with a physical infrastructure that we're going to continue to maintain on army installations at other places to do some of what we can only do in a lab. Well,
1: let's talk about what, what this all changes in terms of what your workforce might look like. Cause it opens up a lot of new recruiting possibilities, right? If you, if you don't, if, if for, if for some proportion of the workforce, they don't need to be at Aberdeen proving ground or some army garrison, they can be anywhere. It, it, dramatically broadens your recruiting pool, I would think.
2: Yeah, there's two huge appeals to at least two huge appeals to 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 looking at this from a recruiting and even from a retention perspective. Right. We know people are most productive when they're when they're happy with their life. Right. And so for a lot of people that's location based, that's family based, that's geography based. Um and, and so from from our perspective, looking through the lens of the technical competencies we have, what we do, to know then we can put out job announcements that say um, you, you can work remotely, you you choose the location, you know, we just want you a couple times a month, once a quarter, whatever the right time is for that space to check in. At a hub to check in at a location and you make a decision then where you want to live. If you think about it, really, even when we put out job announcements now historically in the government, we cite a duty location. We don't tell people where to live. So we've got employees that decide, well, I'm going to commute an hour each way. I'm going to commute two hours each way. We've got an employee that flies his plane to work each day. Right. This is pre-COVID. So we never told people where to live. This is really an extension of that. And also setting expectations of therefore. What flexibility will give you how often you have to come to work? So I can say, well, here's the expectation. Every so often, you're going to have to come in and work with the team. And again, that'll be different for different spaces. We now open our ability to attract and recruit talent to so many different sources that we haven't been able to have before because we stipulated a, a duty location. So one appeal is open this up to to sources of talent we haven't been able to attract before because we won't be necessarily specifying a duty location it may be get to the closest regional hub it may be come come collaborate every once in a while the other appeal to this comes from a diversity equity and inclusion perspective you know this is a, a heavy emphasis for the army and rightly so and so you know an extension of that being able to attract people we haven't been able to attract before is to really be as fully inclusive as possible for opportunities. Where do we go? If you think about it, we're, we're an organization that's all about innovation. Technical innovation comes from innovation of thought. Innovation of thought comes from a diversity of a workforce that's diverse in background, diverse in experience, diverse in geography. And so it's absolutely in our interest to think about how do we attract the diverse workforce in each of our spaces where we're fully inclusive to our existing people opening opportunities. So wouldn't it be great to be able to open opportunity for someone in Detroit, in our Detroit location to work on a project based in Huntsville, Alabama, and not have to move from Detroit to Huntsville, but you can be connected virtually. And now I've opened up a whole host of opportunities for existing workforce, as well as new workforce to come in.
1: And and the concept paper talks about the, the difference between as you put it, reactively filling vacancies in kind of that mechanistic way versus competency-based talent pools. Talk, talk a bit more about what you mean there.
2: Yeah. So this came out of our talent management strategy, which we published a year ago and is the product of, of, of about two and a half years of work before that. You know, what, we, what we learned in that was two important things. One is we need to look at ourselves as a set of competencies. We've got 40 or 50 technical competencies that range, like I said, anywhere from cyber to food science to energetics and warheads to aerial autonomy to protection. And each of those spaces have need for talent. And and each of those needs for talent are going to find that talent in partnerships with different universities or in different locations. And so one was this notion of, it's really hard to think of the command as this homogenous group of 15,000, 25,000 people. We all have a common interest, but it's within these competencies that we need to look at what's the health of our talent and how do we improve the health of the talent so that being rooted in competency wasn't one important aspect the other one is you know we're a learning organization we're an adaptive organization technology changes and so how do we make sure we are keeping up and we are developing technology at the speed of relevance and so to do that you've got to be willing to change yourself and so it was hugely important for us to recognize that if what we do is always reactively fill a vacancy, someone leaves, we want to hire a person just like that person that left. If instead we set ourselves up on periodic timing to look within the health of the talent we have within a space and proactively think about building talent pools for the future that puts us on a much more solid foundation for innovation and for executing our mission. So those are two important aspects that came out of that talent management and and to not look at just reactively filling a vacancy based on a near-term need, but we're an organization that's about the future. So think of our talent that same way.
1: A lot of these changes seem like they, you know, they implicate policy issues and procedural issues that are not insurmountable, but are stuff that you're going to have to work your way through. I mean, things like are, are there are there GS job series that, that map onto the competency models that, that you want to build for the future? You know, if somebody is assigned to Aberdeen Proving Ground, but they actually live in Omaha, where is the lo- their locality pay? Like a lot of little niggling things like that, that you're going to have to think about and come to solutions around. How much of that is kind of TBD and, and how much of it is OK, we know how to do this?
2: A little bit of both. So when we briefed General Murray in January on this concept and, and he's all in and we're so fortunate to have, again, senior leadership, General George, General Murray all in on this. Um, you know, his said his, his point was, hey, next step is you've got to you've got to come up with that range of acceptable practices. right? Because people will tailor this to a space, but there's got to you got to help them out by giving them that pre-approved range of acceptable practices that people can build off of. And so we've got groups working that. The other thing we're doing is we're is piloting, right? Again, we're, we're an organization that preaches technology development through piloting and prototyping and learning and trying and doing it again. And so we're doing the same thing in this future workspace. So, so we've already hired some people. I hired someone that that uh, works for us here at the headquarters of Aberdeen Proving Ground, but doesn't work anywhere near Aberdeen Proving Ground. And, and other organizations that have done the same, and you can really look at it two different ways, and we're piloting both. One is I can say your duty location is Aberdeen Brewing Ground. You know how often I expect you to come to the headquarters. You decide where to live. And so in your example, if that person decides to live in Omaha, okay, that person decided to live in Omaha. It's on them. I'm going to pay them Aberdeen Brewing Ground. It's on them to get here when they need to be here. Like I said before, it's an extension. I don't ask people where they live right now. Some you want to live in Omaha, and you can get the work when you need to get the work drive on. The other thing we're piloting is, okay, someone lets live in Omaha, let's pay them Omaha rates and then pay them to travel to where they need to travel when they need to travel. Both those are acceptable practices within the current policies. We need to pilot and figure out, is there one that's more effective, more efficient, or are those both things to be considered in our range of acceptable practices. And then the last one is we're looking at we've got 90 locations just in CONUS and then we've got locations internationally as well. Do we really just want everyone to be within range of one of those 90 locations where you come in and virtually connect into a hub when you need to connect as a third alternative as well? And so, yes, some of these are being piloted, already being worked. We're admittedly trying to get irreversible momentum building on this. Um, And then some of this is still TBD as well.
1: Talking with John Willison. He's the top civilian official at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. We'll come back and talk some more about talent management and the new concept paper DEVCOM has just produced on the future of work after the pandemic. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. John Willison is our guest this hour. He is the deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. And we've been discussing the new concept paper DEVCOM has just produced on the future of work after the pandemic. Have you come across any areas where, and it sounds like the answer is probably no, but I'll ask anyway, have you come across any areas where you feel like you're going to need a change in policy or an exception to policy from HQDA or from OPM or even legislation to, to modernize work.
2: So we're very fortunate that in 1995, Congress um, put in the language, something called science and technology reinvention labs, STRLs. And what that was meant to do even back then was to make sure that the federal lab systems have the authorities they need to stay viable, to stay competitive. And so to your point before about GS schedule, one of the things that being an STRL does is it gave us the ability to structure a different pay system. So we've got demo bands, broad bands that we can bring people into in a band. People can compete and people can move up through a band, advance up in a band. So it gives us some flexibility to compete for talent. We get authorities, different congressional authorities every year as a result of being STRL. Um, The ability to invest in workforce development to a certain extent, the ability to invest in infrastructure. And so um, we fully expect that as we get into this, even though we haven't found anything yet that's a constraint, that we probably will. And at that point, we'll either go back and ask for a change to policy, or we may go back and say there's additional authorities that we need to implement this. And I'm confident that that'll be received well because of the understanding of you know, we're not the only ones obviously thinking about this and doing about this. And so the market's going to drive a lot of this behavior. You know, we're doing this because we want to be competitive in the market. And and so to be competitive, we may need some changes, but we have not found anything yet we need to change to.
1: Yeah, it strikes me one reason for that is, uh, you know, a flip side of a lot that we've talked about is... Google and Facebook are not going back to work as normal after this is all done. So they can very easily poach your folks from Aberdeen Proving Ground, your best and brightest without them having to move. So you got to kind of keep up.
2: Yeah. um, Admittedly, I was, I, you know, went on an information campaign when I was trying to convince some of our leadership that, that we needed this head this way. And so I got in the habit of pretty much daily sending them the, you know, the, um, the, the Twitter post from Twitter or from Google or, you know, the, the LinkedIn post from from these high tech firms saying we, we told our workforce, they never have to come back. Right. Because to your point, that is absolutely a trend um, in some of our competitors for talent. And so on that side, yeah, it's a motivation or fact to know that, you know, when people say, are you concerned that there may be a temptation to slip back into old practices? And so, yeah, sure, that's a concern. There's some people that have a comfort zone with with being back at work and, and, and what that feels like and what that looks like in their experience. I believe that's the, the counterweight to that is what the rest of the market is doing and what we did for a year. So if we've enabled that flexibility and people have been productive in our workforce and you now tell someone who really has enjoyed that flexibility, they need to come back. There's going to be another organization that doesn't feel that same way. And that's going to be attractive for some of our workforce than to go work there. Conversely, admittedly, one of the reasons we're moving out so aggressively on this is I fully expect us to be able to attract some talent for organizations that do try to go back. And so I think this is going to be a competitive edge for us as well to provide that kind of flexibility for our workforce.
1: I want to flesh out the the when piece of the future work concept a little bit more because we haven't, we haven't spent a whole lot of time on that yet. Traditionally, federal workplaces are, pretty rigidly attached to, again, rigid time and attendance model. I I guess I have two questions there. One is, going back to the policy questions, do you have enough flexibilities to work outside that 40-hour work week? And two, how do you make sure people don't burn themselves out? I mean, I, I think that's happened to everybody across the board. Once they've gotten out of the traditional office setting, if you can work from home, there's very little... your your brain space just doesn't allow you to divide between my home hours and my work hours. So a lot of people just tend to naturally work more. So how how are you dealing with that?
2: Yeah, great question. And so I would say, you know, I'll give you our experience today, but then I also, how I see this going forward. Right. And so, you know, I said, you know, our our tagline for the where is work, where you're most productive. Our tagline for when is work, when you're most productive. And and again, this is a lesson learned from this past year of experience where a lot of people were dealing with a lot of demands at the time, right? Kids weren't in school. Uh, There were families to take care of. There were were crowded houses where everyone's trying to get things done. And so we realized we needed to provide some flexibility for people to work when they're most productive and and to get off this notion that there's core hours. Everyone's got to work between nine and three and then plus or minus some hours after that. You know, is that really when people are most productive? And, and what we're finding is not necessarily right. And so, not all work can be asynchronous. Not all of it can be kind of people working off and then and then sharing um, sharing products online. But but some of it certainly can be. And so, we think yeah, there's there's again, this comes into a leadership behavior of are our leaders checking in our employees? Are they encouraging them even though they can't? go away for vacation, to take a break, to take some leave, to worry about their mental health and make sure, to your point, they're not just being burned out. I told you, on average, our whole workforce worked 40 more hours last year than they did this year. We're we're keeping our eye on that, right? To make sure then when people can go away, they do go away, that we are giving people a break and we're not just overworking them because people's tendency, there's there's no border between home and work. And this is one of the reasons I think you'll see people choose a blend of sometimes coming in the office, sometimes being working remotely. And with the other thing we want to really make sure it's not binary either home or in an army lab. We think there's probably a middle ground in there too, where people are near home, where they go somewhere, a shared space, or they go somewhere where they can be productive. And it gives them a little bit of that boundary between they're not working all the time and living all the time in the same place. Um, and, and so it'll be up to different people to figure that out. The people that have different preferences, have been different situations. Our goal is to provide that flexibility, but, but you great point. It is a concern, something we're, we're keeping an eye on.
1: Um, we, we talked a bit before about the, you know, the the huge way in which this opens up your your perspective talent pool. Maybe talk a little bit more about what you're doing to assess what your future competency needs are going to be within DEVCOM, and then how you're mapping that up against what you have in the workforce right now.
2: Right. So from a process point of view, one of the things I'm most excited about, as I mentioned, we've got 10,000 government engineers and scientists, and then we've got just as many partners in academia and industry. Uh, And so we've got a tremendous amount of intellectual horsepower of people that are subject matters, subject matter experts within a space. What we know is a lot of innovation comes when you connect some of those people in the same space together. And more importantly, you connect people across space because a lot of that innovation comes in the combining someone who's a network expert with someone that's a synthetic biology expert or connecting someone that's a a, um, materials expert with someone that's a uh, vehicle expert. And, And so the notion that we can connect people virtually now, whereas before we get a project, that project would pretty much be defined within an organizational constraint, within a physical location we can now open that up to to people nominating themselves for projects working cross competency. And so to me, from a process perspective, that's probably one of the most exciting aspects of this. What that will cause us to do is, even more so than we had in the past, look at each of our 70 competencies. And and right now we require all of our leads to do a five-year health assessment of each of those competencies. So tell me what the health of that talent is within that competency now, And tell me what you think it looks like over the next five years. So, again, we're asking people to think about where do they have gaps in talent that we need to proactively try to build now, either by internally developing people or to go out and recruit new people. And so we've really got that future eye on the health of the talent to to help us look at that so that we are not reacting we need an expert in this. We don't have an expert in this. We have to go out. But we're thinking about that ahead of time and projecting that.
1: Talking with John Willison, the deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. He's back with us for another few minutes after another quick break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few minutes left with John Willison, the top civilian official at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, as we talk about the new Future of Work concept paper DEVCOM has just come out with, talking about how to extend some maximum workplace flexibilities to the workforce even after the pandemic is over. You mentioned earlier that to a large extent this has General Murray's blessing, which is great, because, you know, I think one of the central conceits of building Army Futures Command was that we wanted to bring all of the elements of the Army modernization enterprise together and, and have more cross-pollination between various commands. How, how, you know, how many other Army modernization organizations are thinking the same way and, and um and moving in the same direction you are building those cross-functional you know work groups where they they get outside their traditional comfort zones and offices and and talk to people they maybe wouldn't have talked to before
2: yeah so for us um you know we we have about 75 percent we execute about 75 percent of the army's research there's other parts of the army within the corps of engineers um they've got a research organization space and missile defense does and, and Army Research Institute does as well for, for on the um, the talent management side. And so we've had a great collaboration with those organizations um, historically and continue to. We shared with them our thoughts, our future to work concept. They're thinking a lot of the same. So we've got great collaboration there within the Army. We've also got great collaboration with our Air Force and our Navy counterparts. So we've each shared each other's plans. Um, you know, we we meet quarterly. With our air force and navy counterparts to talk about things of like interest this obviously has been a big topic both started back in talent management but also with future of work um, and again i think we're really now at the point where it's it's beyond people talking about it and thinking about it writing about it um, and now we're really starting to see people act on it and i know you're seeing similar actions within the air force and the navy as well and other parts of the Army
1: down to maybe our last four or five minutes i mean you're very optimistic about all all this which is good but i mean there's going to be hard parts what what do you see as um some of the biggest obstacles or challenges to really over the long term transforming the the way your workforce operates
2: yeah two two big challenges um both of which um i I think we will overcome but they are challenges one is as we connect people virtually right we're used to Coming into an army installation, coming into a gate, coming into a protected area and working on what we need to work on as we provide the flexibility for people to work remotely. And and really, that's the term. So more so than telework, because it's going to be wherever people are, work remotely. We've got to figure out that balance from enabling people to work remotely, but also protecting the products of our research, protecting that data. And so that's going to require us not to just physically have protection for that data. It's going to require us to really look at how do we protect that data online? How do we enable people to collaborate online? But how do we make sure that data, those products are protected? And so we're going to have to figure out how to to meet both those needs. So that's one big challenge. The other big challenge is the challenge we talked about earlier. This absolutely changes the way our managers and our leaders are going to have to manage and lead people what it means to have leadership presence what it means to virtually build teams instead of physically build teams what it means to check in on people right to manage that health it's it's a challenge and it's going to require us to look at different skills we've already brought some training in that looks at how do you manage virtual teams how do you manage remote work how do you shift from like i said managing people's time and physically watch them to measuring setting expectations on output, measuring that. And so to me, those are the protecting the data, changing our behaviors from a management leadership perspective, because that's what will drive the overall behavior. Those are the two big challenges. But I see both of those, one, as being able to be overcome based on the actions we're already taking. And then two, admittedly, it's going to be driven by the market. We've got to figure this out. If we really want to be somewhere where we're able to track the best talent to work on the most challenging problems that the nation has in some uh, of the best infrastructure. If we want to be able to compete for that, my view is we're going to have to be able to provide this flexibility. And not only are we going to have to, we're going to benefit from doing so.
1: Let me just throw open um, another potential challenge I can think of, and you can tell me whether or not it's really a challenge or not. You, you mentioned that the overwhelming preponderance of your workforce is civilian, but but some number are military and they are governed by an entirely okay. different set of personnel policies. And, and And I wonder, can you envision a time when some of that military workforce that maybe is moving from an acquisition job to a program management job can do so without having to PCS in between, much like you're thinking of with the civilian workforce. I mean, are, are you talking to the G1 folks about some of those issues and making that that part of the personnel system more flexible?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, yes, we are, we are thinking about it, talking about it. You know, admittedly, even going back to the, you know, you referenced the creation of Army Futures Command, not even that terribly long ago. Um mm-hmm. You know, one of the goals was how do we attract the talent that we need both on the military side and the civilian side and, and a recognition that we need to be more flexible and more adaptable to people flowing in and out of military. You know, We talk about this on the civilian because the market drove us there, right? We don't anymore talk about career development from a, a bringing someone in as a recent graduate and they're going to retire after 36 years of experience. We have some people that that's absolutely the right model for. We also know people are going to move around more. and We believe there's a health in the system when there's movement. And so that same model holds true on the military side to an extent as well. And so how do we facilitate that movement within career paths, across career paths, across geographies, right? Because we would love to have access to the military expertise like we would the civilian expertise, no matter where they are. Right, so how do you rapidly form teams and really the Army embraced this to an extent with the cross-functional teams it established. You know, it recognized to get after some real hard problems. We needed a team with different skills. You know, we remember different members bringing different skills to that team, right? So that's literally a cross-functional team. Well, imagine if we can bring that to, to not having to worry about getting all around the same table all the time in a location. So from a military expertise, And from a civilian expertise, how do you rapidly form teams virtually to get after hard problems, solve the problem, and then people go on to the next problem?
1: John Willison is the Deputy to the Commanding General at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. We've been talking about the new concept paper DEVCOM has just released on how to extend maximum telework flexibilities to the workforce even after the pandemic is over. We will link to that document at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And if you've missed any of today's conversation, we will post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen to us in podcast form. Subscribe to On DOD on Podcast One. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servo. So long.
0: You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night.